Now, the reason I believe this story is important and practical for us is because it illustrates how to deal with a crisis. It's a story about something that, that happened to a young man that placed him, placed him in a real fix, placed him in a real pickle, if you will. The school in the story had a problem. It was running out of room. And finding that there was no money available, no building fund already set up for construction, the ambitious students took it upon themselves to build an addition, which in the end turned out to be a whole new campus. Now the student mentioned in our scripture reading was evidently very, very poor. Today we would say he's dirt poor. But I want you to notice, I want you to notice that his poverty did not stand in his way of doing his part. He didn't say, I have no money, I have no axe, I'll stand here and watch. He didn't say that at all. This ambitious young man instead went out and found someone else who had an axe, and he borrowed that axe from him so he could join in with the building of this seminary. Now that may seem strange to us because nowadays axes are readily available. They're really inexpensive too. I would guess for $20 you can buy a pretty fair axe. I don't know, I haven't bought them for a long time. I think I have two hatchets and two axes at home that already I don't use, so I've not had to buy another one. But iron in those days, and especially axes, something that was made with iron, were extremely precious and very, very valuable. Well, the Bible tells us as this young student was swinging the axe to cut a tree, the axe had slipped off of the handle, flew through the air, and landed, landed out in the deep water of the River Jordan. And that created a crisis. What accentuated that crisis is what the Old Testament law said about happenings like that. We find this law in Exodus chapter 22. It reads that if a person borrowed something and it was lost or damaged, the borrower had to either replace it or make a full restitution. That created the crisis. But this young man had no financial means to replace that axe head. Remember I said he was poor. So his only choice would be to quit school, get a job, maybe in a fast food place, that's where we would send him today, and work until he could repay the lender. Now in those days, that probably would take a year, maybe even more, to earn enough money to buy a replacement axe head for the person who had lent the axe to him. <clears throat> so this account then speaks very well to the same kinds of situations that we find ourselves in from time to time. Situations that, that we ourselves know about. Something is valuable, something valuable rather is entrusted to us and accidentally it gets lost or it gets damaged in some way and we find ourselves responsible for a financial obligation that may be well beyond our means of paying. Or, or perhaps an accident or an illness may happen to us or, or someone we love, which completely upsets our world, kind of tears it apart, and leaves us wondering how we will survive. And so we cry out from the depths of our heart, like the young prophet did. And that's why this story has value for us. From it, we can learn important spiritual principles about how to trust God's faithfulness when things go wrong. Now if we look closely at this passage, we will find it teaches that the best way, the very best way to prepare for a crisis is to invite God's presence into our lives. 
And it reminds us that the very best time to do that, the best time to prepare our hearts to trust God, isn't after or during the crisis, but long before. That's the time to prepare. Because trusting God effectively during a disaster is a byproduct of making it a regular habit to seek God's involvement in every area of our lives, all of the time. Notice how the passage begins. Now the sons of the prophets said to Elijah, See the place where we dwell. Under your charge is too small for us. Let us go to the Jordan, and each of us get there a log, and let us make a place for us to dwell there. The seminary had a problem. But it was a good problem, a wonderful problem. There were so many young men attending the seminary that their meeting place was getting cramped. There wasn't room for them all to sit under the roof to see and study together. There wasn't room for them all to sleep. And while they were pondering this, this problem, one of the young men remembered a place along the Jordan River that would be a great location for a conference center, indeed an entire campus. It would be a wonderful spot. It was a special place to these men. It was a place dear to their hearts because it was the very place from which Elijah had been taken up into heaven in that flaming chariot. And so they approached Elijah and they asked his permission to begin building a new campus. His answer, go. Go ahead. Do what you want to do. But traveling to the site with Elisha's, Elisha's permission wasn't enough. They made another request, and as it turned out, this request was crucial to effectively dealing with the pending disaster, something they didn't know what was going to happen. The request is found in verse 3. Be pleased to go with your servants. In other words, won't you come along with us? Elisha, please come with us. Now, Elisha was God's representative spokesman to his people. He was, as it says in verse 6, the man of God. It was through him that God conveyed his message to his people and through him that God performed his mighty works. It's different for us today. Since Jesus Christ came, since he sent his Holy Spirit down to this earth, we can commune with God at any time. We can speak to him, we can pray to him, we can ask him, we can know that he hears us and we know that he answers our prayers. But in those days it was different. They had to go through a prophet. They had to go through a priest. The prophet or the priest would pray for them. It's not like we have it today. So in those days, for this student to ask God's representative, Elisha, to accompany them, was akin to asking God himself to come with them, to accompany them to the new building site. So there's wisdom in the invitation. These young men, these young men didn't want to begin building a place for themselves which could seem selfish to some, without the blessings and the very presence of God, the presence that was confirmed through the attendance of his prophet Elisha. And the Bible says that Elisha consented to their request. Verses 3 and 4, I will go, he answered, and so he went with them. And it was a very good thing that he did go along. Because of his presence, he was able to be the instrument of God's faithfulness in a time of crisis. I want to stress how important this principle is this morning. When you and I routinely disregard God in our daily matters, in the daily matters of our lives, or even sometimes deliberately, deliberately choose to exclude God from our plans, we set ourselves up for disaster. 
But, but when we make it a habit of our lives to pause at the beginning of each day and at the beginning of each task to invite God's presence into our situation, we do the absolutely best thing that we could do to prepare ourselves for any calamity, any problem that may come our way. And so the prophet Elisha went along with the construction crew and the building, the work of the building project began. Bible alludes to the fact that things were progressing well. Verse 4, when they came to the Jordan, they cut down logs. Can't you imagine the picture? All of the energy in all of these young men with axes in their hand, cutting trees, chopping them down. Some were over here not lobbing off the branches. Others were notching them, some piling them up. We can imagine things were going well. There was lots of young energy there, lots of strength, when suddenly a catastrophe. Bible says, as one of them was felling a log, his axe head fell into the water. Now evidently, evidently the water where the axe head fell was too deep and too fast flowing for the head to be retrieved. The Jordan River in those days was wide and it was deep and it flowed quickly. Today, it doesn't do that. It doesn't do that because so much water is sucked out of it to irrigate fruit trees, citrus fruit trees that grow along, along the River Jordan. But in those days, it was wide and fast flowing. It could be crossed only in one spot, and that was by Jericho. There was a ford there. Otherwise, it was too fast, too fast flowing. It was dangerous. So his axe head fell into the water, but it was too deep. And if it could have easily been retrieved, we would have guessed that the young man would have rolled up his pants legs, walked into the water, and stooped over and picked it up. But he couldn't see it. He couldn't find it. Now the Bible doesn't tell us how, but I can imagine that this young man and his companions tried by themselves to retrieve the axe head first. Maybe they walked along the riverbank, searching the water, looking into the water, hoping that the rays of the sunshine would, would reflect off that shiny piece of metal and they would know where it was. But it could not be found. And when Elisha walked over to see why the construction had stopped and walked over to see what, what the commotion was all about, the young student approached him and cried out in desperation, Alas, my master, it was borrowed! It's at this point, I'd like to suggest a second lesson that we, we can learn from this passage. It is that no crisis is ever hopeless as long as we cry out to God for help in the midst of it. Nothing is hopeless when we cry out to God in the midst of it. The student's cry was a cry of desperation. It was offered up with a sense of hopelessness. It was offered up with a sense of frustration. And that's why, that's why it is so very important for us, for you and me, to make it our habit to invite God's presence into absolutely everything that we do. Even though this young man's cry was one of desperation, alas, my master, it was a cry that was sent in a Godward direction. Similarly, similarly, when we turn to God in a moment of disaster, even if it's with a less than perfect faith, and even if it's with an attitude of desperation and fear, and even if it's a little more than, please, Lord, help, our loving Father will hear our cry, and he will come to our aid. In fact, we find he promises that exact thing in Psalm 50, where we read, call upon me in the day of trouble and I will deliver you and you shall glorify me. Call upon me in time of trouble. I'll be there. I'll deliver. One of my favorite prayers in the Bible is a prayer that Peter prayed when he got out of the boat 
and walked on the water to meet Jesus. Remember that story? The disciples and Jesus were on one side of the Sea of Galilee. It was late in the day. It was dusk. Jesus sent the people, the followers, home. He told the disciples to go across the lake, and he would meet them there, and he went up on the mountainside to pray. And so they took off. They didn't want to. It was dark, and sailing across the Sea of Galilee at night was a, was a treacherous thing sometimes. And sure enough, when they were in the middle of the lake, a storm, a storm happened. I can imagine there was a lot of wind. There were high waves. There was maybe thunder and lightning. And even though these men were fishermen and they knew the water, they were terrified. They were terrified. And then, to make it even worse, they looked across the water and they saw something coming across the water. It looked like a ghost to them. And they were even more afraid. And it appeared as though Jesus was going to walk right past them. And then he noticed how terrified they were. And he just spoke to them. He said, fear not, it is I. And Peter said, if it is you, Lord, invite me to get out on the water. I'll walk over to meet you. If it's you. The Bible tells us, and Jesus said, it is I. Come. The Bible tells us Peter got out of the boat, and he walked on the water, and he came to Jesus. But when he saw the wind, he was afraid, and he began to sink. This all happened very quickly. So quickly that Peter didn't have time to write down a, a beautiful or a theologically profound prayer. Not at all. All he had time to do was to scream because he was sinking at the water. Perhaps, perhaps when he said this prayer, he was, he was armpit deep in water, sinking quick. All he, had to do, all he had time to do was scream out these three words, Lord, save me. And Jesus reached out his hand and rescued him. So the lesson is to make certain that you welcome Jesus' involvement into your lives. And then when crisis strikes, and it will, make sure that your next action is to cry out to him, Lord, help me. Because there is no crisis so hopeless that you cannot cry out to God from the middle of it. The young man in our text cried out to Elisha in the middle of his crisis. Elisha's response, where did it fall? I can imagine he asked that question calmly. He was a calm man. The man pointed to the place that he had seen it blop and splash into the water. Elisha's response seems a bit strange. Verse 6, he, Elisha cut off a stick, threw it in there, and made the iron float. Be amazed at some of the silly things that some commentators have written about this event in an effort to think up some natural explanation for what actually happened here. I want to share a couple of them with you this morning. One began by explaining that iron can't float. I don't think I have to explain that to you. You know that iron can't float. Okay, so we can start a bit later. So he surmised that Elisha must have picked up a long stick, 12 to 14 feet long is what he estimates picked up a long stick, held firmly onto one end of it, while he skillfully passed the other end of that stick through the hole in the axe head that was lying out of sight at the bottom of a river filled with murky, fast-flowing water. And then after he had speared that axe head on the end of that 14-foot stick, he simply lifted that heavy piece of iron, which was now on the end of his stick, out of the flowing water and flung it onto the shore, and it landed right at the feet of the young seminarian that had lost it. Now, I don't know how many of you have ever tried to pick up something at the end of a broom handle. It takes a lot of effort, a lot of strength to do that. 14 feet and an axe head 
is even heavier. That doesn't make any sense, does it? No, that can't be true. It's not believable. Another explained that Elisha must have thrown his stick into the water like a spear. And, and the stick went right through the hole in the axe head. Through the water, by the way. Which, at which time, the stick and the axe head together floated to the surface of the water. Now, when you think about that, it would have required a remarkable amount of marksmanship on the part of Elisha and an amazingly buoyant piece of wood <laughs> to pick up the axe and bring it to the surface. Still another explained that the stick Elisha threw into the river was a special kind of wood that somehow changed the chemical composition of the water in such a way that the iron hacks head would, was made to float, sort of like a bar of ivory soap floats on the surface of bath water. Now, of course, it would have brought up every other piece of iron that was in the water, too. So we know that, too, is not very believable. None of these explanations are true. The axe had floated because of a miracle. A miracle. It wasn't something Elisha did. It wasn't even something that necessarily required a stick. It was something that God did. Something that God did. And I don't think it's a minor point, though, that of all of the things Elisha could have thrown into the water, it was a stick that he threw in, because after all, there were sticks around. I can picture Elisha walking over to one of those trees that were laying on the ground and breaking off a branch and, and, and throwing it into the water, just flinging, flinging it into the water, which leads us, leads us to another very remarkable principle about God's work in our lives during times of calamity. That is that God is able to use the circumstances of the crisis itself in order to bring about a solution to it. This is something that, if you think about for a moment, our sovereign God is fond of doing, and especially during times of crisis. Think back to the time, think back to the time when the Apostle Peter came to Jesus and told Jesus that the temple tax was due. That he had to pay the temple tax. Evidently in those days everybody had to pay for use of the temple. The tax was due. If you didn't pay it, you were not allowed in the temple. But Peter didn't have any money. Remember, he had left his fishing business to follow Jesus. He had no money. We'd ever read that Jesus paid, was paid for any of his actions, any of the things that he did. But I want you to notice Jesus didn't tell Peter to go out and get a job and pay the temple tax. He didn't tell him to look under a rock somewhere to find the required money. He could have done that. He knew that Peter was a fisherman. And as such, Peter had a fishing pole. And he had fishing line. And he had fishing hooks. And he had bait. And he knew how to fish. Some people have those first four things, don't know how to fish. Peter, <laughs> Peter, Peter knew how to fish. And so Jesus sent him to the lake and he said, cast your line in. And the first fish that you catch open his mouth and in the gullet of that fish in the throat of that fish is the temple tax the right amount of change the right amount of money to pay the temple tax when Jesus fed the 5,000 similarly he didn't make food appear out of the sky he didn't rain down manna on the 5,000 people 5,000 men plus women and children he didn't rain down manna so they could eat like he did with the Israelites years before that he, told, he asked the disciples what they had, and they told him they had five loaves 
of bread which were about the size of our hamburger buns, that small of loaves, and two fish. And Jesus said, bring them to me, bring them here. And so they brought this paltry amount of food to him. I wonder what they were thinking about. How, what's he going to do with this? Is he just going to eat himself? What, what's he going to do with this small, minimal, minuscule amount of food? But the Bible tells us Jesus took that bread and took those fish and he prayed about them. He broke it in pieces and they fed the 5,000 men plus the women and children. And when they were finished, when they were all full, didn't eat any more, they picked up 12 baskets of leftovers. Again, Jesus used, as he did in Peter, used the tools that Peter had. Jesus used here the bread that the disciples had with them. But I believe the best example that we're talking about here is our salvation. When Adam sinned, he brought upon the whole human race, he brought that whole human race into a state of alienation from God, including himself. He too was included in that. But God solved our predicament. He did that by sending his only son, a son who had to be truly God but truly human, his only son to become a member of the very same fallen human race, that's the human part, taking our sin, yours and mine, upon himself and dying in our place on the cruel cross. In other words, God used the very material of the crisis, which was our condition, our human condition, in order to solve it. He could have done a lot of ways. He used the human condition, and the human being to solve it. And so, friends in Christ, never fret. Never fret during a time of crisis. Our mighty, all-sovereign God is able to use the very circumstances of our situation in order to bring a solution to it in a way that it is all done, all done to his glory. But there's one more lesson for us to learn from this passage. And it's about God's faithful work in our lives during times of crisis. It's that God will not only meet our needs and that God will only meet our needs in a crisis as far as necessary for us to do our part. Okay? God will only meet our needs in a crisis as far as necessary for us to do our part. I'm certain that you will agree with me that the same mighty God who could make iron float on water could have also made it float in air. He could have spoken the words. That accent could have jumped out of the water landed on the, on the shore of the river where the young man could have picked it up. He could have made an accent float up to the riverbank within easy reach of the young man so he could just bend down and pick it up without getting his feet wet. In fact, if God wanted to, he could have had Elijah, or Elisha rather, throw the accent into the water, as one commentary alluded to, throw the axe handle into the water, the handle that the young man still had in his hand, and it have it miraculously join itself to the head of the axe, and both of them could rise out of the water and land on the riverbank. He could have done that. That's not what God did. That's not what God wanted. Instead, after Elijah, Elisha threw the stick into the water and the iron floated to the surface of the water within sight of the student who had lost it, we read, and he said, take it up. So he reached out his hand and took it. Notice, notice God made the man, the young man, who was the center of the crisis, do some of the work, part of the work of retrieving it. Wouldn't have to have been that way. We did some of the work of retrieving it. It was his obligation to do that. Now I wonder how that went, perhaps you do too. Did the young man grab a stick, one of the branches laying on the branch, and kind of try and 
move it over, kind of guide it over to the riverbank so he could pick it up again without getting wet? Or did he have a couple of his friends hold on to back to the back of his shirt as he leaned over the water and, and retrieved that axe that was floating on the top? I wonder, when he picked it out of the water, was it surprisingly heavy? For those of you who have tried to pick something out of the water, when the surface tension on the water is great and it wants to pull down, it takes more effort to lift it out. I wonder if he had that, felt that same exertion, pulling. And, and did he have trouble fitting the axe head that was now in his hand back on the handle that was in his other hand? And, and what did he do? What did he do to ensure that it wouldn't fall off again? Did he tie it down? Did he nail it down? Did he screw it? What did he do? What did he do? It's evident God didn't do all of the work of putting that axe back together for him, isn't it? But what God did do for this young man in his predicament was what this young man could not do, could not do for himself. No, it wasn't a matter of God helps those who help themselves, which is an, an unbiblical saying that is often thought to be biblical. In fact, it was just the opposite. It was a matter of God helping a man who could not help himself, who could not bring that accent up from the bottom of the river. Only God. Only God could make that axe head float. But I want you to notice once it was floating on the surface, God instructed the man to take over and do what he could do. Now think back to the time when Jesus healed those who were paralyzed, those who were crippled, those who were blind. After they were made well, he often said something like this to them, rise, take up your bed, and go home. Rise, get up and walk. He never ever, do we read, carried their bed home for them. No, they could do that themselves now. He never ever took them by the hand to guide them home. They could see to find their way home now. He made it possible for them to do what they were capable of doing by first of all, doing for them what they could not do for themselves. Similarly, God didn't make the axe head float up into the man's hand. He could have. He didn't. He put it within the man's reach so he could reach out and pick it up. When there's a crisis in our lives, God does not expect us to be passive spectators either. Instead, instead he graciously allows us in a marvelous way to partner with him in order to solve our problems and to meet our needs. He does for us what it is impossible for us to do for ourselves, and then, and then he calls us to rise up and do what we have the ability to do, the ability he has given us to do, the talent he has given us. Now we notice that especially when we consider the means of our salvation. God sent his son, his only son Jesus, to die on the cross as a sacrifice, as an atonement for our sins which because of our sinfulness, we could not do. No way could a sinful person earn salvation for him or herself. No way. Only Jesus could do that. And he died on the cruel cross as a sacrifice and an atonement for our sins, which because of our sinfulness, like I said, we could not do. It took a perfect sacrifice, someone who was truly human and yet truly God to do that. We could not do that on our own. 
And then he was crucified, but he rose from the grave, again, something we could not do. And he ascended into heaven, something we could not do, but that's not all. He sent his spirit, the promised counselor, back to the earth to live in our hearts, yours and mine, to empower us to serve him. See, that's our part. No, we cannot earn salvation. We cannot purchase salvation. Only Jesus could do that for us. And it comes to us as a gift, a gift of grace by faith. All of that's a gift. But the power of the Spirit who lives in our hearts, if we believe in Jesus Christ, who lives in our hearts, enables us to be God's hands and his feet and his mouthpiece. And he tells us to reach out to those who need to hear the blessed message of the gospel. He provides a seed for us to plant in their hearts. So they turn back to him. He lets us do what he has equipped us to do, using what he has given us to use. This obscure story teaches us some very valuable lessons about how God faithfully works on our behalf during times of difficulty. In those times when we cry out, alas, or please help, as did the young student, we will need to put these principles to use. And maybe that will happen sooner than we think. May God, may God help us to learn from these young seminarians this morning before the time comes when our axe head falls into the water. Amen.